Gary Parish, Thursday, September 19, 2019. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and we are now deep into recruiting season. Coaches bouncing around the country, prospects taking visits, publicly pledging their allegiances to various universities. So I want to start with some recruiting news uh, from the past week. And I want to start with a couple of five-star guys making commitments to five-star programs. Five-star guard Terrence Clark, he committed to Kentucky this past weekend. He's ranked fourth in the class of 2020 after announcing that he's reclassifying from 2021 to 2020. In other words, he was a junior, but now he is essentially a senior. So that happened over the weekend. Then uh, on Wednesday, uh, DJ Stewart, a five-star guard, uh, committed to Duke. He's ranked 26 in the class of 2020, and the byproduct of those two recruiting developments is that, surprise, surprise, Kentucky and Duke currently have the number one and number two ranked recruiting classes in the country. And if this holds, um, they will finish first and second in the recruiting rankings for the sixth time in the past seven years. The only miss was this past year, but the circumstances that led to that, that snapped that streak, were so unique. Obviously, it involves Penny Hardaway getting the job at Memphis in the same year uh, when three of his former Team Penny players were about to be seniors in high school, most notably the nation's number one prospect, James Wiseman. So four of the seven players in Memphis' top-ranked recruiting class, they were actually like top 115 prospects from the Memphis area. So Penny was set up to kill it when he got the job. It's partly why he got the job when he did. I'm not sure anybody uh, expected him to actually land the number one class above Duke and Kentucky, but the circumstances were of such that it, it was clearly going to be possible. So the class of 2019 rankings were Memphis, Kentucky, Duke in that order, but now we're back to normal. Duke and Kentucky back at the top. And so here's my question for you, Norlander. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is it that Duke and Kentucky get the best classes basically every year? They're not the only two places where you can compete for national titles or play for a Hall of Fame coach or play in a great conference or prepare for the NBA or be on television or play in front of monster crowds or travel in a first-class way. You can do all of those things, or at least most of those things, at lots of different places, and yet it's Duke and Kentucky at the top of the recruiting rankings basically every year. Why? Because if you look at GP, I don't have the numbers right in front of me here because uh, you sprang this question on me unexpectedly, which is what I like on this podcast. Keep it improvised. Um, my guess is now we have... Uh, a system that is reinforcing itself. And by that, I mean, for sure, by far, Kentucky has the most uh, NBA picks since Cal got to Kentucky and the most lottery picks. So if you are a top 50 level talent that's going to commit to a school and top 50 level talents, if you want to even you know, upgrade that top, top 25, five stars, purely five star kind of guys, the odds are more likely than not that any other school, any other school in the country Kentucky is the place that will get you drafted as soon as possible in the best possible position. There are exceptions to that. Generally speaking, that can't be overstated. I'll also include that Kentucky, when you go there, when you see how much the fan base cares and is committed, and if you are the kind of five-star prospect that is endlessly devoted basketball to who you are as a person, 
I'm not just talking about the games and the practices. I'm talking about workouts. You think about it. It is almost all you think about. And then you go to a place like Lexington, Kentucky for officials and unofficial visits. And you see how the program is treated there, how the fan base uh, regards Calipari and its players. I think that is something that is tough to overcome for a lot of schools outside of that. So from the Kentucky angle, I think it's pretty easy. Calipari is the greatest recruiter in the history of the game, in my estimation. He's in the perfect spot. He's the perfect coach at the perfect program and entered in at the perfect time of his career and really the perfect moment for that program to need someone like Cal to take it over. I think it's been a just really ideally a, a, a perfect confluence of events over the past 10 years. Um, you know, minor letdowns of not winning national championships aside. That's a total, totally other discussion, which we've had before and I'm sure we'll have again, but not now. As for Duke, you are dealing with the greatest coach, arguably, in the history of basketball, not just college basketball, there can be a real case to be made for Mike Krzyzewski as the greatest coach in the history of the game. And when you have someone of that kind of stature, uh, like Calipari, an active Hall of Famer, Duke is the most popular brand, if you want to call it that. Polarizing, sure, as well. Um, has been sending guys with regularity. And in the past 10 to 15 years, maybe more 10 years or so, you'll recall, GP, that although like you know Grant Hill and, and potentially uh, uh, Carlos Boozer, Shane Battier, they were seen as like these sort of exceptions. The knock used to be that you went to Duke, you were awesome in college. In the NBA, though, there was no real you know, security guarantee that you were going to have the same kind of success. You can look at recent players that have gone to Duke and that you can say, well, the patterns continued. But by and large, you have seen how more players have gone to the NBA at Duke over the past seven to ten years and had more success, been drafted higher than they once were. And I think that has caught on as well. And once you get to a certain point, and it's really – just really only been Duke and Kentucky. Arizona's been close. If you look at the past 10 years worth of recruiting, Arizona and Sean Miller have been close in many years and, in fact, you know, finished third right there. Um, Memphis now enters as a real player. We'll see what happens in the next year or two with the local talent there and what Penny can do nationally. But it has been Duke and Kentucky that have separated themselves because of the coaches, because of the the visibility of the programs, I think that can't be understated as well. It's not as though North Carolina, UCLA, and Kansas and these programs don't also get that kind of attention. But if you were to step back and put yourselves in the shoes of a 16- or 17-year-old parish and watch as the season plays out from things that you can read on your phone to what they see most notably on television to podcast coverage or whatever, it's undeniable that Duke and Kentucky receive more discussion and, and publicity and marketing than any other program in the sport. So those are my Big Ten overarching takeaways. I'd be curious if you have anything else. I'm, I'm sure you do as to why that's happened. But I think it's just so hard to fight against that at this point. My last thing, and this might be what you're getting to as well, it's not as though other programs don't benefit from this, but with the exception of maybe Carolina with the Jordan brand and Oregon with Nike, you can't convince me that no other two programs have as much infrastructure backing behind them the way that Nike supports both Kentucky and Duke. I I agree with – I think everything you said it plays into it to some level. And we should point out, because I know there's uh, some fans out there screaming, why do Duke and Kentucky have the top-ranked recruiting classes almost every year? It's because of Nike. Idiots, have you not paid attention to the wiretaps and text messages? And I'm not going to um, – minimize the role that nike presumably 
uh, plays in aiding some of its biggest brands, as we've said, and I think you and I both agree on this, um, whatever uh, Adidas officials were caught doing, it's not a unique to Adidas officials. They might have been uh, sloppier than they should have been, a little more reckless than they should have been. They're the ones that got caught, obviously, but uh, I don't think uh, the Adidas officials invented uh, funneling money, uh, resources to people in exchange for for getting prospects to enroll at Adidas schools. I, I think Nike has done similar things for years, and I think Under Armour has done similar things, and um, so I'm not dismissive of that, but I, I also don't think it's just that, that Nike is, you know, uh, pulling the strings as a puppet master and making sure, um, you know, Duke and Kentucky are taken care of year after year after year. I don't think it's as simple as that, even if some people uh, might try to suggest it. I think everything you said, like I said, plays a role. I think the first thing you said is the biggest thing, and that's that we've reached a point where it's almost feeding itself where because the best players in the country year in and year out go to Duke and Kentucky, it actually makes the next group of best players in the country want to go to Duke and Kentucky. I think the past success, the, the recent past success, ha- has really, really helps them in, in the present day. And um, I guess this, this is because I was thinking through it and I was – I was trying to make sense of it. Like, what? Why is why is it that a high school senior right now wants to go to Duke or Kentucky over any other brand, even if he's being you know, recruited at a high level by other big brands? And the best thing I can come up with is that you know, besides all the obvious things that we've talked about, is that we've reached a point where if you are quote committed to Kentucky or committed to Duke. It's almost like a label, like a status symbol, like it says something uh, about you. It suggests excellence because year in and year out, that is where the best prospects tend to go. Um, I, I, I would relate it to when I was around that age. I was not a, a prospect in any sport of any kind of, of this level. So let me make that clear. But I, um, th- there was a, fo- a soccer club that was started uh, it basically took all of the competitive teams my age and made it into one. So, like, if there were three high-level club teams, uh, soccer teams in, in my age group, um, we we merged them, and it became Memphis Football Club. And I grew up in North Mississippi, uh, a suburb of Memphis, and I was the only Mississippi soccer I would warm up in a Memphis football club practice jersey like it said Memphis FC on it and I don't know that I recognized why I was doing it at the time but looking back on it it I think I really like the idea that just me being in possession of this thing it says something about me that I'm different than everybody else on this field nobody else um, is was pursued by Memphis Football Club. Nobody else plays for Memphis Football Club. This suggests excellence or that I'm just a level above everybody else. And then I'd go out and score a hat trick because I really was good. Um, <laughs> okay. But I wonder now if Duke and Kentucky, on a much obviously bigger stage and level, if it's almost the same thing. Like when you commit to Duke, 
it says something about you. Like, you know, when you're a high major prospect, that, that independently says something about you. But it's like, ooh, that's somebody Duke wants. Yeah. Ooh, that's somebody Kentucky wants. And I think that teenagers now have, you know, very much um, subscribed to that. You know, when you see a, you know, when you get an offer from Duke, like there are kids out there right now who get offers from um, Kansas and Louisville and Michigan State and other amazing programs. For whatever reason, as the kids say, it hits different when it's Duke. It hits different when it's Kentucky. And I think the fact that they have strung together elite classes featuring elite prospects year after year after year helps them in this way because when you commit to Duke, it is a, it's a headline and a status symbol that it otherwise would not be. Same thing when you commit to Kentucky. Any of that true to you? Most of that is true, and I think college football had this, and maybe still does to a certain extent, but particularly I think for this gone, this went on, on longer than maybe it should have with Notre Dame kids. If you were recorded by like Notre Dame, I remember hearing back in the day that if a kid was regarded as a certain level and then Notre Dame started looking, maybe he gets elevated a little bit more. That doesn't happen so much in basketball, I think, because of the way that the recruiting is set up and how these kids, when their talents are identified as elite talents, 14, 15 years old, uh, you rarely see a player because, in fact, almost never, I think the recruiting experts that cover the field do a pretty good job and, broadly speaking, um, are fairly accurate when it comes to this stuff. Sure, you're not going to see a John Morant. That's, that's to be expected and all that, but you don't see a player that's, say, a three-star that goes to a five-star over you know a two-month span. That almost never happens. And if it does, it's usually not because, hey, now this kid's being specifically targeted by Duke or Kentucky. I don't think that the system is set up this way. But GP, here's what I want to throw back at you. So I was, as you were talking before, I was looking um, at football. And because in recent years, obviously Clemson has come to be right there with Alabama. What we have in Duke and Kentucky in college basketball, we have with Clemson and Alabama in college football, although they don't necessarily align the same ways because uh, a little to my surprise, Clemson actually has not been finishing atop the recruiting rankings the way that Duke and Kentucky have Clemson in a given year might be a little bit further back. But aside from that, check this out. And then I got my question for you and then See if you can if there's even a program in college basketball that you think applies. So for the past you know seven eight years, Clemson's been extremely good. Won national championships two of the past three years. Been to the final, uh, been to the college football playoff final three of the past four years. But from 1994 GP until let's run it up until 2011, Clemson did not finish the season ranked in 12 of those seasons. Uh, had a year in which it won only five games. That was 94, 98, won only three. Had a lot of seven-win seasons, six-win seasons, even eight and five, seven and six. It was just kind of there as a program, right? But given where it was located and its conference, even though the ACC in football has never been the SEC, and I get all of that, um, I don't know if it was necessarily a sleeping giant, but it was a proud program that just kept running up against the wall for one reason or another. Couldn't quite get there with Tommy Bowden, Tommy West before that, Ken Hatfield, et cetera, et cetera. And they hired the right guy in Dabo Sweeney, and now it's a machine. You've got arguably the best quarterback prospect playing at that program in decades. Um, just great player after great player. Dabo can go into the South wherever he wants and pluck all these players. So my question for you, GP, is this. As we talked about Kentucky and Duke being 1-2 in the rankings, is there any potential 
for any other program that's in a similar spot that Clemson was a decade ago to even have any chance to even enter the conversation. And I would apply that criteria, GP, to be a program that regionally cares and a, a school that cares about college basketball is maybe underperforming. And if it gets the right kind of hire, can do that, say, from now, between now and four or five years from now. Do you think that there's a school that is positioned to do that? Because I have one potential nominee, but I'm curious to think if there's anyone that could apply in that situation. Mm. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think th- there's no obvious reason why Arkansas couldn't return to that if if Musk like, hit it out of the park. I mean, it was once a, um, a nationally, consistently nationally relevant, operating at the top of the sport program that has an incredible uh, uh, fan base, uh, a passionate fan base, and all of the resources to operate at the top level of the sport. So I know it's been a long time since Arkansas has been great, but um, I, I could certainly see Arkansas being great again, sure. Yeah, um, I could see Arkansas being great again. I can't see Arkansas rising to the level where it's getting top five classes annually. Um, the only school that I think that it would apply here, and it's not an easy parallel, GP, is – and the coach has never proven to be able to do this yet, so we have to see if this is possible. And if it's not this coach, maybe it's the next one. Given its location, its conference, its history, its appeal, its standing with the shoe company it's aligned itself with over a long-term contract, if you get the right pieces in place, there there is almost <laughs> – and the Bruins fans are going to be like, thank you, I've been screaming this for a decade. There's really no reason why – well, there's not no reason why. I understand getting in and admissions can be an issue. But UCLA <sighs> – UCLA should be vying for top five classes annually. You go to that campus. A lot of this stuff can be sometimes perish. Like a lot, I get it. So many facilities are great these days. Campuses are beautiful. You go to that campus, and if that program is rolling, would you agree? And and, and not even, like, ignore the California bill stuff that's coming down the pike, right? It's It's hard to fathom how UCLA is not in that number three to number seven class range every single year, given what's there and what should have been provided in recent years by the athletic department. Perhaps they can get it done with Cronin, but, but UCLA would be my answer to, if you wanted to look up in three to five years and see a school that was finally like vying there, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. That's like almost like the Clemson parallel in football. To me, it would be UCLA. I don't know why everybody doesn't go to UCLA for any sport. I don't know why UCLA is not awesome at everything. It's an, it's an incredible place. It's an incredible place. You got a beautiful campus, and a you know one of the most significant cities in our country. Um, amazing weather. Like there's a reason all of the famous rich people live there. It's because it's an amazing place to live. Like I I really I, I'm confused by the idea that UCLA isn't awesome in literally everything. <laughs> I don't I know. I I get you. Um, but. It is fascinating, and maybe this is goes to the the center of the psyche of the UCLA tortured fan base, and and uh, I don't want to say an inferiority complex because they don't have that. Um, but yeah, it's it's got to be frustrating when you look at the history of that program and how it just from you say it in everything, no doubt about it, but specifically in men's basketball, and perhaps they'll get it rolling in a in a really strong way with uh, with McCrone. They obviously have arguably the best freshman point guard coming into the sport next year in Dacian Nix, but. Um, that would be the one that I'd be waiting on. But I don't think that while Kay and Calipari are working at uh, at Duke and Kentucky, that maybe Penny GP. But really, uh, if you told me that 
one of these schools will be in the top two every single year until they retire. I'd believe it. I'd say it's actually weirdly more likely than not to happen because we it's just we've we've hit this this is this is an era and it, it will continue to go on until uh until those guys step down and i would expect k to uh, to do that before cal yeah to me and i think another contributing factor is the roster turnover you know they really don't have to worry uh you know as we circle this back to to duke and kentucky recruiting they don't have to worry about usually having this amazing sophomore point guard who is going to prevent the next, um, you know, five-star point guard from enrolling? Because it's almost understood at this point, um, we're going to have a, you know, a, we're starting fresh basically every year. I know um, Trey Jones would be an exception to this uh, at Duke, and and honestly, that that could have been the thing that cost them Boogie Ellis, that helped Memphis get the number one recruiting class in America, the return of Trey Jones. But Kentucky and Duke are able to consistently go out and get the next great things because their rosters are like the playing times available. You know, Zion ain't coming back. RJ ain't coming back. You know, the kids at Kentucky, largely, you know, the, the top shelf guys, uh, they're going to only be on campus for a year. And so you don't really have to worry about the, um, the possibility of getting stuck in a numbers game and, and being, you know, on, on the bench at the end of a rotation because you know the, the the roster starts fresh nearly uh, nearly every year, so I, I think that's a contributing factor as well. But I do think it's it's super interesting that you know like we can compare it to the football rankings, and and usually like the same schools are going to be at the top, but it's not going to be the same two in the top two basically every year. And yet that is what we've got with Kentucky and Duke, um, you know, with the exception of of this past year. Um, and the explanation for that, I think, is 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 pretty obvious. We went we went through it. I really do think that it's become a status symbol to say I'm going to Duke or I'm going to Kentucky, and um, and that kids are kids are like anybody else who buys a Mercedes or you know uh, has a Louis Vuitton bag. Like being a Duke commit or a Kentucky commit registers differently than. I do think anywhere else in the country, even if there are other blue bloods, other cha- consistent championship contenders, and other Hall of Fame coaches, the status symbol of being a Duke recruit or a Kentucky recruit is different than I think any other status symbol, and I I believe it aids Duke and Kentucky in recruiting. So, I agree with that, and I think particularly as it's, as it speaks to Duke GP. Let me, let me make this point because it's okay. um, it's something I noticed that's sort of under the same umbrella. You and I were at USA Basketball um, back, I guess, late July, and um, Kennedy Chandler was there. He's a young man who uh, lives here where I live. He goes to Briarcrest Christian School, and he's an interesting story because he's been like a, a top 75 player throughout high school in his high school class. He's a class of 2021 kid, but he was on Mocan Elite, was the point guard there, le- helped them. I don't want to say led, but helped them, um, maybe led. He was awesome in the championship game to a Peach GM title. Gets invited to USA Basketball, really performs there. And now he's a five-star point guard in the class of 2021. He's basically in everybody's top 20, 25 now. He's probably improved his status as much as anybody in the class of 2021 over the past, say, six months. I should point out he also won a Tennessee State Championship um, you know, was the MVP of it, uh, in I believe, 
as a sophomore in high school this past year. So it's been an amazing run. Um, so then he gets back, you know, summer's over. He's back in school and I actually had him come in studio with me um, and, and hang out for, you know, 20 minutes or so one day. And he was wearing a USA basketball shirt. And then the other day he had an open gym and there were coaches there, obviously, to see him and news cameras there. And so I saw it on the local news. He's wearing a USA basketball shirt. Yeah. Because that USA basketball now, it, it's not just, it, it's, it, I, I'm assuming it's not the most comfortable shirt he has or the only <laughs> shirt he has. <laughs> but that you, like USA, it says something about you. Like, I am USA basketball. And so he, like, you walk around very proudly, um, you know, wearing that. Not just because it's a cool shirt, but because it says who I am. Yes. It says how good I am. And I think, again, I, I am committed to Duke. I am committed to Kentucky. Nobody has to guess how good you are. If you are committed to Duke or Kentucky, it is now established. You must be exceptional. And I think that feeds it just, I think it aids the recruiting process, feeds itself year after year after year. It does. The USA basketball thing is for real in terms of how that organization has made it a desirable thing for 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds. You know, I know that they're, you know, the, the, the team that just lost overseas and finished what seventh place or whatever, it's a disaster. I get all that. But at the, at the younger levels, we see that at peach jam, you see the kids in their warm-up gear after the game. They either have their USA basketball backpack on, they got the USA basketball gear. It is very much a status symbol in the ways that you were talking with about with Duke and Kentucky, which is good. It can have potential negative effects if you don't wind up living up to that you know, expectation and that, and that status symbol, if you will, when you get to college, but that's column A and column B. GP, mm. what you've talked about with Duke I think feeds into something that we should hit on with your column this week about the kid that goes to Harvard. So set that up. What, who this player is, why he went to Harvard, why you endorse the move, and then I'll I'll chime in with with the Duke angle on this because you made a, you made a good point uh, about the type of recruit that because it's Ivy League stuff, just you know people tend not to talk about and write about much. But uh, but surprisingly enough, we we haven't seen more of this. Although maybe that's changing. So I uh, thought it was interesting on Sunday, four-star prospect named, and I'm going to butcher the name. I actually text messaged a couple recruiting analysts uh, a minute ago to like get the proper pronunciation. I just haven't heard back yet. Couldn't find anything on YouTube. Yes, I did look. Justice Ajagbar. Sounds good uh, to me. It's something along those lines. Um, he committed to Harvard. He is um, not a consensus top 100 player in America, but he is a four-star prospect, and he is ranked 60th in the top 247 over at 24-7 Sports. And that makes him, according to our buddy Evan Daniels, um, the highest-rated prospect ever to commit to Harvard. And he did so despite having multiple offers from traditional high-major programs in traditional power conferences. And I decided to write about it because, A, I just think it's interesting, and, B, it is an example of something I've thought should be more seriously considered by talented prospects annually. Um, and that is the Ivy League option. Now, as I point out in the column, if you're a five-star prospect consensus top 15 player in your class, 
go wherever you want to go and because you're probably going to be a one-and-done or two-and-done prospect. That's what history shows. Uh, life's going to work out for you fine no matter what. You're, ob- you're, you're almost certainly not going to do four years of college basketball. So why do you want to go to an Ivy League school when you're going to play two years of college and then sign a multi-million dollar contract to play basketball? So like, I ain't talking about them. Although if they wanted to, fine with me. What I'm talking about is the guy exactly like this guy. Ranked outside of the top 50, but still, you know, obviously talented. But statistically unlikely to ever be an NBA player because the truth is, though there are examples outside of the top 50 every year that end up in the NBA, you are, the the likelihood of you getting there if you are ranked outside of the top 50 in your high school class um, is, is very, very low. If you're a top 10 player in America, it's very, very high. If you're outside of the top 50, it's very, very low, even if it does happen. As I point out, Steph Curry, Kawhi Leonard, Damian Lillard, all amazing examples of sub-50, even sub-100 prospects coming out of high school who not only made it to the NBA but have become stars in the NBA. But uh, make no mistake, they are the exceptions, nothing close uh, to the rule. So what I've thought for a while is that, let's just say if I had a son, who was ranked, I don't know, 77th in his high school class. So he's good enough to go to a high major. Probably ain't the type of guy Duke and Kentucky are recruiting, but certainly the type of guy other schools in the ACC or SEC um, is recruiting. And he's also super smart, and not just super smart, but um, uh, adequately educated in the sense that his transcript looks the way and he's coming from the type of school that might allow the Ivy League to, to be a realistic option. And Tommy Amaker and uh, Steve Donahue and other Ivy League coaches are, are interested in him. I've long thought that I would really, really ask him to seriously consider the Ivy League option because here's the truth. You get the best of both worlds. No matter what happens over the next year or two or three or four, you leave college a massive winner because though it is true um, more NBA prospects come out of Duke and Kentucky than other places I think that's got way more to do that with with Duke and Kentucky recruiting more NBA prospects as opposed to developing NBA prospects although I don't want to be dismissive of the role John Calipari and Mike Krzyzewski play Um, uh, but the, the, the truth is like you can you can get to the NBA from anywhere it, it can be Washington or Weber State it can be Memphis or Murray State you can get there from anywhere. So if you are actually good enough, you know, one of the few sub-50 players who, who who develops into a legitimate NBA prospect, no problem. They'll find you at Harvard or any other Ivy League institution or any other institution in this country. But if the more likely scenario plays out, which is you're not an NBA prospect, you're just a talented basketball player who was good enough to go to college and play, but not really much more than that, well, you're still going to be um, – probably the most talented dude on your team, which sounds fun, as opposed to buried on the bench at a high major program. Probably going to be one of the most talented players in your league, which sounds fun, as opposed to mm. you know a guy coming off the bench in a power conference. And you're going to exit school with a degree from an Ivy League institution. And I submit that if you are entering a post-basketball life, probably the most valuable thing you can take with you is a degree from an Ivy League institution. Now, clearly, you're sacrificing something 
if you take the path that this young man is taking, um, you're not going to be playing in the biggest and best arenas. You're not going to be, uh, you know, chartering flights. You're not going to be on television every week. Um, you're not going to be playing against the best, you know, and you know, in the best conferences year in and year out. Like, I'm not trying to pretend this is apples to apples. You are sacrificing all of those things and other things um, in exchange for the Ivy League education. But I really do think that if my son were all of the things I've described, I would maybe want him to do exactly what uh, this young man's doing. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a wonderful goal to have. So why doesn't it happen? Why hasn't it become more of a trend? I think there are a few reasons for it. Um, if you get into a situation where you're a top fifty player, which is not what. Uh, what justice is, but if you're a top, if you're regarded as a universal or near consensus top 50 player, um, you already, while while not Ivy League, and Ivy Leagues are mostly a, a separate deal here. I'd argue Stanford is, is essentially uh, just as good, but. <laughs> If the Harvard, Cornell, Columbia, and Yale bros want to come at me over that, feel free. Uh, would not have remotely come close to being accepted into any of these uh, fine institutions. Um, you've got, say, Duke. Okay, A Duke education on top of its tradition, that's why we're not going to see it happen at top 50. So you go to that like you know, 51 to 100 or 125 or whatever. Why, why still has it not been as, as common as maybe it, it might be? Um, Parrish just hit on a lot of the stuff that I think is accurate. Um, I think going into those environments, if you're not truly exceedingly academically focused, is not going to lend people to go and play in those. Otherwise, Stanford had it rolling for a long time. Stanford should be getting better. Stanford should be racking in every single top 100 prospect that qualifies there's similar to UCLA. I've actually I've actually never been to the Stanford campus, but I have two friends who attended Stanford and know people who have been there and say like you've got it just ridiculous. Okay, absurd. Pat Forty's daughter, our good friend Pat, scholarship swimmer at Stanford. He's like, <laughs> I remember back when she was still going through the process of being recruited, not sure. And I remember at the time Pat was like. She's going to make her decision, but uh, she better pick Stanford. Like, there's just – when when Stanford comes to you and wants you to, to, to attend that university, you absolutely take it because it is regarded as the best non-Ivy option out there with the exception of, say, like an MIT or whatever. So um, it's still a bit vexing to me that you don't have, say, a Stanford being better. Michigan, extremely strong public university. So I think when you have kids that – are going to be qualifying to get into an Ivy. If they're good, if they're that top 100 parish, they're obviously going to be capturing the attention of other extremely good public institutions that can offer uh, scholarships. One thing I don't have fact checked in front of me, GP, and I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm guessing while the Ivies have some nice, it's not scholarship free, so to speak. They they do have uh, tremendous financial aid packages at a lot of these Ivy schools. But I don't think the kids at the Ivies get the um, GP. Why am I blanking on the term? Why am I, the the checks that the, the the players get every year now? Cost of attendance. Correct. Statement. Correct. I don't think if you go to an Ivy, you get a cost of attendance. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think you get a cost of attendance if you're 17, 18 years old, and uh, you know, Big Ten cost of attendance is going to be you know a check for four grand. Does that make an impact? I think I think that it might. Plus. 
I, I'm only trying to think of like a 17-year-old GP. Like it's an incredible opportunity, but it's Ivy League education. It is extremely hard, and the and the and the uh, you know the circumstances there for any 17 to 18 year old student athlete is just you got to be you got you got to want to take it on. You got to really want to take it on, which is why I'm always impressed by any Ivy League player, people that go play for West Point, even more so. You play for a military academy, the, the well-rounded young men and women that that are able to do that, so extremely impressive. I'll tag it with all this GP though. We'll say this: Tommy Amaker has it rolling and rolling hard as of late. Eleven of the best fifteen recruits to ever attend Harvard, given the past twenty years worth of a database, which, if, which, which in Harvard's case is totally fair to say, they've all been in the past four recruiting cycles. Eleven of the top fifteen, that, and that doesn't even get into some really good guys from years past, like Wesley Saunders. Doesn't get into Jeremy Lin as well. So um, Harvard's got it going, and a newsflash here: they've they've got a chance to be like a top thirty program this season a lot of talent they're healthy uh so as we talk about what the, how they're building for the future harvard could be set up for a dynastic run in the ivy league over the next three or four years because it doesn't look like anyone is particularly close this year to the crimson and that could be the case next year and the year after so when i ask like why don't more prospects ranked say between 50th and 150th consider an ivy league option like seriously consider it we've had some some players uh, recently like have harvard on their list i think mobamba had Harvard on his list. Wendell but then Carter goes to Texas. Yeah, yep, yep. Wend- Wendell Car- Carter at Duke, right, GP? Uh, Wendell Carter, uh, yeah. Like, uh, had Harvard on his list. I think he even visited, maybe. But ultimately, he goes to Duke. So these guys have considered it, but, you know, Justice is the, is the highest rated prospect to ever actually pull the trigger. So when I ask, like, why don't more prospects seriously consider it, it's almost a rhetorical question. Um, the answer, I think, is, and you sort of touched on it, you know, I'm thinking of this from the perspective of a 42-year-old. Um, often we're asking, you know, we're asking prospects to think of it from the perspective of a of a 16 or 17-year-old. And though what I'm telling you is true, that if you're ranked outside of the top 50 in your high school class, you are almost certainly not going to make it to the NBA. They don't believe that. They 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 all think they they can oh, because yeah. if you're ranked you know, 75th in the country, it probably means you have been the best player on your high school team, uh, for the best te- best player on every team you've ever played on, or at least, like, if you get into Nike, YBL, grassroots stuff, top three player yeah. on, you know, one of the best grassroots teams in the country. Th- th- there's nothing that's ever happened in your life that makes you think you're not going to achieve what it is you want to achieve from a basketball perspective, even if statistically, if you look at it, the odds are drastically stacked against you. So I think that's the number one thing. Like, why would I go to an Ivy League school uh, if I'm only going to spend two years in college? Because they, you know, if you rank 75th in the country, you don't think you're spending four years in college. Uh, at least most young men don't. That's why this young man is 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 um, is is interesting to me and and seems to be. Um, very self-aware. Like, again, he's ranked 60th in the country according to one recruiting service, and his announcement, I don't know if you saw it, the actual wording of it I thought was interesting. He didn't say, I'm committing to Harvard. He said, I have decided to spend the next four years playing basketball at Harvard. Hmm. He's not even talking about leaving school early ever. This is a top 75 prospect. He he He's like, I'm going to school for four years, and I'm going to do it at Harvard. So I think that the the idea that nobody thinks they're spending four years in in college um, if they're ranked in the top 75 is why more top 75 prospects don't consider this in addition to 
you know, the television, arenas, charters, big brands, basketball brands, as opposed to Ivy League brands, all of that plays a role. I will say that I have, you know, when I asked the question on Twitter, why don't more, you know, I set the column up, the responses, largely from people who don't read the column, they just read the tweet, um, uh, the, largely the, the, the response was rooted in, well, it's because it's uh, super expensive to go to an Ivy League school. You know, because they, as you point out, do not have athletic scholarships. But that is completely misleading. It's not, and all Ivy League schools are different, but let's just focus on Harvard for a second. um, Because that's where uh, this prospect is attending. Do you realize Harvard is one of the most affordable universities? One of the most affordable um, college options in the country? (laughs) Yeah, with with a uh, .005 acceptance rate, yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, you, listen, it's almost impossible to get in there. I think the acceptance rate is 4%, actually. Yeah. Well, that's but, actually that actually is truly higher than I thought, but maybe uh, not as many uh, teens are shooting their shot. But uh, that's interesting. Anyway, continue. But, but, yeah, once, but once you're admitted, financial aid is available to you. If your family makes less than $65,000 a year, which I know is not a lot of money, but it there are – trust me, there are some basketball prospects in, as well as soccer – just – there's people that that you pay nothing to go to Harvard. If you're accepted, you pay zero. Twenty percent of Harvard students actually pay nothing to go to Harvard. And you know, if you come from a more affluent background, they really they have a, a formula in place. And you know, you punch in all the numbers, and they 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 only ask you to pay what you can afford. So I figured it out. Um, you know, like for a, a, a family that like makes good money, really good money, if you send your kid to a private school right now in high school and he were to get accepted to Harvard, you would pay less for him to go to Harvard than you pay for him to go to a good private school in high school because they don't want people leaving there with incredible student loan debt or any student loan debt. Yeah, And so... I got one person after another on social media saying, well, you can't get an athletic scholarship and you don't want to come out of Harvard $200,000 in debt. You won't come out of the Harvard $200,000 in debt. It's not only that basketball prospects do not leave Harvard with, with, with debt. Students do not leave Harvard with debt. And so that's one of the real misconceptions about Harvard and other Ivy League institutions. It sounds like it's impossible to afford it. But that's not actually a thing. It's impossible to get accepted. But if you're accepted, you're in a good spot. That's uh, that is pretty. That you are in a good spot. It's it's the lack of exposure again. It's it's hand in hand. What you hit on there, GP, with the top seventy-five prospect. You ask any player that's ranked in the top one hundred, and any they're thinking that they're going to play in the NBA. Many of them, if not. Most of them believe that it will not take four years worth of experience at the college level to get there too. I think so. I think that also is a is a is a hindrance. But uh, but good on Harvard, man, and that's going to be a good team this year. And uh, and a nice column from GP. If you have not read it, it is up obviously at CBSSports.com or just bring it up on your phone on the CBS Sports app. All right. Before we get out of here, I want to touch on Tony Bennett reportedly turning down a significant raise from Virginia after winning a national championship. But first. Now, check this out. 
Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, a story comes out earlier this week that Tony Bennett, after winning the 2019 NCAA tournament, you might have heard 2018 becomes the first one seed to ever lose to a 16, 2019 national champions. And so, obviously, when you um, have that kind of uh, success, uh, we live in a world where um, your bosses can't wait to hand you more money. And so, uh, Virginia... Uh, administrators went to Tony and they offered what has been described as a quote substantial race and Tony turned it down um, and asked them to instead take the money and invest it in his staff take the money and invest it in other program improvements and you know at or around the same time he also he and his wife um, gave 500 or at least pledged five hundred thousand dollars toward a career development program that's been launched for current and former Virginia players. And I had somebody ask me, like, is this a publicity stunt? And I'm like, what? Like, there's a whole lot of ways to get publicity if you want it. Um, You know, giving away or, or rejecting substantial amounts of money isn't really the smartest way to go about it. I don't believe it's a publicity stunt. Hell, I don't even think Tony Bennett likes publicity. So, like, he's the last person who would even pull a publicity stunt. Um, I think it's just a reflection of actually who Tony is and how unique he is in this very specific profession because I don't know how many national championship coaches um, or high major coaches in general would turn down a a substantial raise that the market suggests – um, they deserve. I, I, Tony might be in a in a in a group by himself on this one. Uh, so you hit on something that was what I was going to say off the top here. <laughs> How many coaches behind closed doors that are like at that high level? So coaches of like top twenty five programs, coaches that in their heart of hearts know they've got a realistic chance of 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 getting to a final four in the next you know one two three four years or whatever, being like in in a in a beloved way or maybe not being like. This effing guy, are you kidding me? So you're telling me if I win a national championship now, I'm going to look like an a-hole if I don't do this? Tony Bennett's making the rest of the profession look extremely bad. My second thought is, this is a great way to soften the blow for when he's got to say, you know what, i got to bounce, the NBA's calling, i got to leave. They're going to be like, how can we got us a national championship, turn down turn down this huge raise, put you know $500,000 back into the university and spend basketball program to, uh, to build out even more for our student-athletes. The cynical side of me says, yeah, so when Tony Bennett leaves for the NBA, if in fact that does happen, um, he's just, you know, he's affording himself even more even more of a, uh, you know, leverage and, and, and comfort room. What do you think about that, uh, 
Well, I, I think theory. it would be not impossible, but um, incredible if Virginia fans were ever upset with they Tony. They would be, yeah. They would yeah, they be. don't think they would be. And you know what? We actually live in a in a world where um, fan bases they get upset if you leave for another school. Like if you leave for, um, if if you're at one school that people think I got the exact I got the exact example for you, GP. Go ahead. Uh, Butler fans have zero ill will toward right. Brad Stevens, and they have not gotten over. Some of them have not gotten over Holtman leaving for Ohio State. Well, that's perfect. Like, I, the, the the point I'm making, and you've just made it. Uh, fans get mad when you leave their school for another school. They don't get mad when you leave their school for the NBA. It's almost like that's sort of understandable. I, that's why I think, um, you know, it would have been very difficult for Fred Hoiberg to ever leave Iowa State for another school. Like, even if, like, John went to the NBA and Kentucky called. It, it just, like, the mayor leaving Ames for another college job. How could you do this and break our hearts? But when the Chicago Bulls call, it's like, hey, what are you going to do? They're offering $5 million a year, and it's the Chicago Bulls. It's the NBA. Fred has always dreamed or, or, or you know, possibly dreamed of, of coaching in the NBA. Completely understandable. And then he gets fired. He can bounce back to Nebraska. And I don't know that Iowa State fans are upset that he's the coach at Nebraska. But if he'd have left yeah. Iowa State for Nebraska, whoo, that'd have been a big deal. And so um, – if Tony ever were to leave for the NBA, and I do think he will someday, I think he will be an NBA coach someday, I don't think Virginia fans would be upset with him at all. And I don't think they'd have any right to be whatsoever. They wouldn't be. And I think, yeah, Virginia fans are obviously loving the situation they have going. Even like this current upcoming season where Virginia is not considered a Final Four contender, it's Tony Bennett, it's Virginia. Like Even if it's a down season, they accept it because they've got a really good uh, recruiting class set up for the, next, for the next season as is, and they know they've got it good. So they're almost like, can we just hold on to this guy for dear life for as long as possible? Because at this point, barring the unpredictable, Virginia has reached a level. Um, and, you know, maybe they are the uh, they are the true answer for the Clemson parallel I was looking for, for before. But recruiting wise, it's just not the same. They can't get to a level that I think UCLA can. Anyway, um, when Tony Bennett's there, Virginia almost every single season is almost likely going to be in the conversation as a top 10 team in a given season. So you hold on to that as long as you can. Um, I don't know for sure Tony will ever leave UVA and go to the pros. I, I say that, I said what I said before, as sort of a half joke, but a half joke, like half serious, like it could happen. And if it does, obviously UVA fans will uh, begrudgingly accept it. But this was um, a pretty cool, a pretty, uh, a pretty nice move that I'm sure some coaches are like, <laughs> now we have to watch uh, who wins next year. Because you're right. If you win a national championship, you're getting a restructured contract, as you should. You t you win a title, you get a new deal. That's how it should be. And uh, But, yeah, Bennett has has reset the market on this, uh, which, is, which is just funny in its own way because I understand that people are thinking that it was, like, for publicity's sake, you're right. Tony Bennett does not – he's just not like that. He doesn't – he's not one to search for a microphone or a camera. In fact, I'd say he demurs more often than not uh, when it comes to that stuff. And I was actually surprised this was put out the way that it was in terms of just like it, it being out there um, and credit also to his wife, Laurel, because he gave credit to his wife in this decision. Uh, I think it was maybe even her – her suggestion that kind of led it on. Um, but more than anything, I think they put it out there. So 
it also, frankly, it works as a as a as a really strong uh, reinforcement and recruiting tool for the program, just in terms of what they're going to invest in there and how it's being used. The money that he turned down uh, for the benefit of of you know Virginia players and redoing uh, the weight room and and all that stuff at JPJ and all and all that stuff. But uh, but yeah, obviously a, a big dose of positive news for UVA on the heels of a national championship as it prepares to uh, to play uh, play a season here, which I don't know what. I don't know what to expect of Virginia. All I know is I almost I did my 50 things to watch GP, posted that column on Monday and made predictions in for every like major conference and I almost took Virginia again just out of I don't know, default habit, but I didn't. But if you told me, like would you be surprised Paris if Virginia's a 2 seed this year? Would would you actually be surprised if that happened? No, the only way you could be surprised if it happens if you, is if you just don't pay attention to the sport of college basketball. Like I did all of the numbers on it. Not too long ago when I was trying to figure out, well, like back in the offseason, deeper back in the offseason, I was trying to figure out, like, where do I put Virginia? Because they've obviously lost, you know, if they would have, if Virginia would have returned everybody eligible to return, they'd have been preseason number one unanimous. Without a doubt. Um, but, they, you know, they I, I think they lost three players to the M- NBA draft. Yeah. And so, okay, like, you know, they, they that's significant pieces. I think top three scores probably. Um, yes. And, and you start going, okay, well, where should I put them? And you look at the roster, and the roster does not blow you away. But then you look at Tony Bennett's track record, and that absolutely blows you away. Virginia, I'm trying to look it up now, has finished in the top 12 at Ken Palm in one, two, three, four, five, six consecutive seasons. Does it matter who comes, who goes, who leaves early, who stays longer? They finish in the top 12. Um year after year after year, regardless of the pieces, that is a testament to Tony. And I'm just going to assume that they'll be right there again. You know, whether it's sixth or um, 12th, I don't know. Um, Maybe even 14th or 15th, who knows. But the idea that Virginia lost too much to still be one of the very best teams in the country, uh, I I disagree with that completely. And the reason is because as long as Virginia still got that coach, Virginia's going to be good. That's what the track record shows, at least. Jay Huff Hive assemble. Jay Huff is going to have a huge junior year. That is my prediction. But uh, we'll get to more of those as we dip into October. Last thing, GP, before we wrap up, just <laughs> did you see this? Like, uh, did, what? Patino settling with Louisville. And am I correct in this? He gets no money and simply for the purposes of the record resigned instead of was fired like this is a massive l for patino and i don't think it has any influence one way or the other over if he gets hired again i remember when he left i said he's never coaching again and i have softened on that you to your credit uh were much more lenient and liberal to the idea that he could return I don't see this being having any effect whatsoever. Whether he, first of all, everyone knows that he was fired. So even if his record officially shows that he resigned, I think that's immaterial. And he got no money after seeking tens of millions from damages from Louisville. Um, So I thought that was uh, an interesting outcome for Patino to settle on this. By the way, they came to a settlement. It wasn't like Patino like outright lost via any sort of arbitration or legal court matter. They settled this. And it was just not the it was not the outcome I expected Patino to accept. No, now I, I didn't understand like why he thought or why his attorney thought, which is the more likely scenario, I assume, that Louisville would just hand over you know millions of dollars in a settlement 
because I didn't understand. Like it seemed pretty clear that if they wanted to fire him, they had they had reason to do so. If they wanted to stand by him, they could have. But you know, they, 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 enough stuff had happened on his watch where it, it appeared that he could you know reasonably be terminated. And uh, so why Louisville would then just hand over millions of dollars? Um, unless it just, you know, sometimes it's easier just to settle something than it is to continue to fight it out. Like that would have been the only yeah. explanation um, from my perspective. Um, but the idea that he would just let it all go simply because, you know, in exchange for you saying I resigned as opposed to being fired um, is, yeah, I agree, weird. If only, it, it, unless, of course, it just got to a point where they said, we're not giving you any money. Like you, like you, you not a penny. You know, we we did what we were contractually um, within our rights to do. We don't regret it. Um, and so, like, zero is how much we're going to give. And he says, oh, okay, can you at least do this for me? And they say, okay, fine, we'll do this because we don't even think it matters. Like, maybe that's how this happens. Like, he just reached a point where it was made perfectly clear to him, you will not get a penny. And he said, well, can you give me this thing? And they said, if, if, if it'll make you smile, we'll give you this thing. Thank you for your national championships. And um, here you were, you were, you resigned as opposed to fired. That's the only explanation, but why he thinks that matters at all um, is, is strange to me because you know, who, whoever looks at his personnel file, like it, like it doesn't matter. Like it's, he was, he, he was forced out at Louisville um, amid scandal. Like that's, that's the truth of the story. And that'll always be the truth of the story. So yeah, it's kind of bizarre to me. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure Louisville fans are celebrating their athletic director Vince Tyra over this, and if just for from the Louisville side of it, like it's it's a huge win, um, just not having to pay Patino at all, and I'm sure it's awaiting here whatever its next battle with the NCAA might be, um, but to kind of have this be completely now finished in, in advance of anything else that's coming with the NCAA, uh, just you know a little bit of a small headline there, but it was one where I I. I Almost did a triple take with the headline and then read the story and I couldn't I couldn't believe what happened there but uh, but maybe Patino also didn't want more things to go to discovery I don't know it, it it is interesting but obviously Patino wants to move on and I think this now sets the table for him behind the scenes to search for any potential opportunities come March of 2020 uh, I don't know if he'll get it but I do I personally believe that Patino will be actively seeking any opportunity to be a head coach at the college level uh, we'll wait and see what. What happens if we get scuttlebutt with that? But with this now being done, I think that is his next step from where I sit. I promise you he will be looking for college opportunities. Um, when he turned down the opportunity to return to Greece, um, to me that was an indication that he, he's, he wants to take a shot at returning to college. Because if you commit to coaching in Greece, you're still coaching in Greece You know, after the coaching carousel has come and gone. And so the only way to be truly available, you know, next March, April, when college coaches are hired is to, to not coach this season professionally in Greece. And so I, he, you know, I talked to him about it. He was weighing all of these options and he decided not to go back to Greece. And he, he had a lot of different reasons, but I do genuinely believe one of them was I want to be available next March, April, if somebody um, is willing to to hire me, and I, I've said it a million times. I still believe it to be true. Um, you know, we we this is a sport where Sean Miller is still employed. This is a sport where Will Wade is still employed. The idea that Rick Pitino is unhirable—that's crazy. And I do think somebody will convince themselves of it 
um, perhaps as soon as March and March or April. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M.F. and Teagle. He's a legend. Shouts to Larnell. And uh, please go subscribe to the Eye on College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. You can find it, obviously, anywhere you find podcasts these days. But uh, you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Five stars. Leave a nice comment. That's all I've ever asked. And either way, we're going to talk to you again next week. Till then, take care.